Because of the following special program, Sunday with Jack Benny and Mr. Ed will not be seen today, but will return next week at their regular times on most of these stations. What was so important to cancel Mr. Ed, the popular comedy sitcom about a talking horse? This is a CBS News Extra. November 22nd and The Warren Report. Here is CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite. November 22nd, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot to death in full view of hundreds of spectators watching him in a Dallas, Texas motorcade. Here comes Oswald down the hall again. You buy that rifle. The dispatches you people have been given, but I emphatically deny these charges. I'm just a patsy. 48 hours later, the man Dallas police said shot the president, Lee Harvey Oswald, was himself killed by Jack Ruby in full view of millions of Americans watching television. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their... This bizarre sequence of double killings raised great questions. Who actually fired the shot that killed Kennedy? Why did Ruby shoot Oswald? Was there a conspiracy? Were right-wingers involved? Was it a Russian plot? A Cuban plot? The new president, Lyndon Johnson, ordered these questions answered. He appointed a commission of seven prominent Americans to investigate the whole affair. He literally drafted Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren as chairman. Walter Cronkite, the most trusted newsman on television, goes on to meticulously point out the importance of the commission, composed of some of the most trusted men in government. This committee labored 10 months, took testimony from hundreds of witnesses, then brought forth a document close to a thousand pages. The report was signed by Earl Warren, Chief Justice of the United States. At a time when most people still trusted the government and the news media, the Warren Report was widely accepted by the public in the fall of 1964, nearly a year after the day when President Kennedy was killed. Well, if the Warren Commission had looked carefully for the truth, had followed all of the paths that would have had to expose and talk about the Castro plots, the CIA's attempts to kill Fidel Castro, and the involvement of the mafia. So uh, this would have been a disaster for the U.S. image in the world. Right, The U.S. was at that point fighting uh, a Cold War propaganda battle for the allegiances of people in, in non-aligned nations. That was Professor Catherine Olmsted, who wrote Real Enemies, Conspiracy Theories, and American Democracy, World War I to 9-11. For President Johnson, the thought of nuclear annihilation was always on his mind. He feared that a deep investigation into the assassination might turn up culprits in the Cuban government or even the Soviet government. In that case, he would have been compelled to respond aggressively and come close again once to World War III. Johnson, as the President of the United States, did not want to expose those secrets. He wanted to make sure that, that the investigation did not go there. 
But as a result, the later conspiracy theorists were convinced there was some sort of not just a cover-up, but a government involvement in Kennedy's assassination, or else why else would they have uh, insisted on on um, covering up those contacts between the CIA and mafia assassins? Instead of a missile crisis, there was a new trust crisis, which in the end brought down Lyndon Johnson himself. When the reporters published and made available to the public a slew of amateur detectives, began breaking down every aspect of the investigation and its lingering questions. Doubts about the Warren report began to grow, fed by the springs of America's ever-ready paranoia. There had to be another story. Is it when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald? On November 24th, 1963, the nation would, from that point on, be denied answers about what had happened in Dallas. That was Professor Alicia P. Long, author of Cruising for Conspirators, How a New Orleans DA Prosecuted the Kennedy Assassination as a Sex Crime. I mean, also, just let me say, you know, our brains want to close the loop, right? I mean, our brains are pattern-making tools. And in a way, conspiracies are just patterns, right? And it, it helps people to sort of close the loop on something. So that's not an unnatural way for your brain to want to problem solve. It's just that it's not necessarily correct. There are brains and brains. Some brains have subpoena powers. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about truth and about fairy tales, about justice and about injustice. Now let me tell you why President Kennedy was murdered and how he was murdered. I also want to give you a few examples which will show you how the conclusion reached by the Warren Commission is totally impossible. President Kennedy was assassinated by men who sought to obtain a radical change in our foreign policy, particularly with regard to Cuba. By 1967, an official brain with a vast platform emerged out of the squirming mass of common eggheads doubting official explanations of the JFK assassination. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, a six-foot-six jack-in-the-beanstalk, fed red meat to the hungry maw of the media. He delved into the murky bayous of New Orleans' secrets and brought to court the only criminal prosecution of the murder of President John F. Kennedy. Garrison's conspiratorial gator nest was later the subject of Oliver Stone's film, JFK. I'm lost, boss. What are we saying here? We're saying that when Oswald went to Russia, he was not a real defector that he was an intelligence agent on some kind of mission for our government and remained one till the day he died. That's what we're saying. Therefore, because Oswald pulled the trigger, the intelligence community murdered their own commander-in-chief? Is that what you're saying? I'll go you one better, Bill. Maybe Oswald didn't even pull the trigger. Portrayed as a white knight in search of the truth by Kevin Costner, Garrison added another layer of mystery. We're talking about our government here. No, we're talking about a crime, Bill, pure and simple. Y'all got to start thinking on a different level like the CIA does. Now, we're through the looking glass here, people. White is black, 
and black is white. Just maybe Oswald is exactly what he said he was, a patsy. Well, I think that he was proposing to play a role that was very appealing, that he was going to be the one prosecutor who was going to convict the murderer of the president. But instead, uh, he really, he came up with his theory and then he tried to, you know, ram the facts to fit the theory to force them into his framework and um, to try and make the facts fit the theory. And uh, as a result, he started propagating lies rather than revealing the truth. New Orleans was, is, and will always be a place of fairy tales. These fairy tales are often gruesome, outlandish, unbelievable, and even true. How can a fairy tale be true? Ask the king of carnival, the master of magic mirrors. And one of those fairy tale people in the mirror was the poet Carrie Thornley, the real-life co-founder of the Discordia religion and the real-life marine body of Lee Harvey Oswald. Garrison felt there were too many overlapping dates and coincidences in New Orleans between Thornley and Oswald that he needed to pursue this deeper. Uh, and then in 1968, uh, Jim Garrison uh, uh, issued a press release saying that I was an employee of the CIA and uh, that he had subpoenaed me to appear before the grand jury. And a couple of days later, the subpoena arrived. Garrison believed in the grand conspiracy wheel, where Kerry Thornley, the poet, was believed to have something to do with the plot to frame Oswald. I am Andre Kodrascu, and in this podcast, we try to untangle the weird relationship between Lee Harvey Oswald and Carrie Wendell Thornley, the second Oswald, between fiction and reality. Or is it the other way around? Carrie uh, Thornley, please. Speaking. Carrie, my name is Andy Shamber. I'm with the district attorney's office in New Orleans. How do you do? Garrison's office made a series of secret phone recordings with Kerry Thornley after they had sent a subpoena for him to come to New Orleans. Kerry was living in Florida at the time, the American paradise, filled with Cubans fleeing Fidel Castro's revolution. Uh, Tom told us that uh, you said that uh, you were coming down and that you wanted to cooperate. And I uh, talked to uh, Garrison about that. And he asked me to give you a call and uh, see if it would be possible for you to come down this Thursday. This Thursday? Yeah, and get it over with, you know, as soon as possible. Sure, I'd like to get... uh... Yeah, well, now, there's one thing, though. I want to have an attorney there when I'm down Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm going to have to, you know, I don't have an attorney here. Curry didn't have much to worry about as far as the straight authorities were concerned. He was already on record testifying to the Warren Commission. Sure, he served with Lee Harvey Oswald in the Marines prior to Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union. If anything, he'd had his writer's career cut short by the confiscation of his novel, The Idle Warriors, featuring Oswald as the main character. Carey had been essentially a character witness for Lee Harvey Oswald, a young, confused, and angry man 
who had read little about the communism he professed to admire. Carey held nothing back about his impressions of Oswald. Jim Garrison, in his book On the Trail of the Assassins, reveals his suspicions about Carey Thornley. We learned that Thornley had been in New Orleans in 1963, finally leaving the city only a few days after Kennedy's murder. Barbara Reed, a longtime French Quarter resident who had known both Thornley and Oswald, described seeing them together on several occasions. One of them was in early September 1963 at the Bourbon House, an accommodation bar and restaurant in the French Quarter. Thornley, who usually wore his hair extremely long, just returned from a trip out of town. This time, he was wearing his hair unusually short and closely cropped, as Oswald variably did. Jim Garrison goes on to recall that Barbara Reed said, were you guys are supposed to be the gold dust twins? We were eager to talk to Carrie Thornley, but he was not an easy man to locate. I, I saw that that certificate for the first time today when I went down to court, you know? Yeah. And like that thing, I, I can understand that maybe from talking to Barbara Reed and that, 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 that you got the idea that I had been seen with Oswald. And that, that had, as it was said in the certificate, that had been established. But there was, there, you know, there was no excuse for saying that I had not been questioned on that in my Warren Commission testimony, because it's on the record that I was questioned as to whether I saw Oswald in New Orleans, and I told them definitely not. And it just irks me a little, because Mr. Garrison, in one of his speeches not too long ago, was talking about how a government that could get away with lying could get away with murder, and I just wonder, you know. This may not be the first time in history that a criminal accusation is based on hair. One had to have lived through the 60s to know what vital role hair played in American history. After the Beatles' first appearance in the US, a hair curtain fell between generations, a curtain no less grievous than the Iron Curtain that fell between the Communist East and the Capitalist West at the end of Second World War. Long hair was subversive, a challenge to militarism and war. A known long hair, who in Garrison's words, was wearing his hair unusually short and closely cropped, was a suspect by default. Why was Kerry deliberately mirroring Lee Harvey Oswald's short-haired marine cut? Whatever the reason, hair in history is no joke. Barbara Reed signed a certificate verifying her statement that Kerry and Oswald had met in New Orleans. In the world of 1960s New Orleans Bohemia, Barbara Reed was a well-known frequenter of the French Quarter Dives and an occasional informer for the police. An inveterate gossip, she didn't miss any occasion to be the center of attention. She had taken an interest in Kerry because he was already famous thanks to the Warren Commission and he hung out with gay men in bird bars. Gay men were a particular obsession to the New Orleans police who received bribes to leave them alone and arrested them regularly at election time. 
Right. Well, as I said before, Carrie, when you do come down here, uh, if you have any questions for us and uh, we can answer any questions that you may have, I, I think we'll be glad to do it. Right. There is a problem here. Kerry had not told the door and commission anything about meeting or not meeting Oswald in New Orleans. In any case, it did not matter. Garrison's probe into the murder of the president was an entirely different matter from the war on commissions. Garrison was charging people in his city for being involved in the conspiracy to kill the president. The mere fact that you knew about the plot before it happened could make you guilty before the law. Garrison did not have any concrete proof against Kerry Thornley, but a lot of questions and suspicions. Uh, and uh, I wound up, uh, I uh, waffled back and forth between fighting extradition and going to, finally at the last minute I decided to go down there and testify. Uh, all my friends uh, who were, uh, seemed to me to be somewhat politically savvy uh, recommended that I go down there and, and talk to him and figured that I could convince him that I was innocent. So Kerry comes to New Orleans, which Garrison wrote about meeting the poet in his office. When he arrived, I talked to him briefly. He was quite amicable and even talkative. It was something of an eyebrow raiser to learn that upon his arrival in the city in February 1961, Thornley had moved right into the heart of the intelligence community. However, my eyebrows went up even farther when I learned that while in New Orleans, he had been writing a novel inspired by Lee Oswald. He finished a book in February 1963, just nine months before the assassination. Not many individuals are writing books inspired by Lee Oswald, at least not before President Kennedy's murder. He had to have been one of the few men in the world that was in New Orleans around the time who knew Lee Oswald, and he knew Oswald was in Russia. In addition, Thornley bore a striking resemblance to Oswald. They were approximately the same height and slight build, both brown hair and have similar facial features. That's the issue. When I've, whenever Thornley wrote that book, and I, that's when Oswald, you know, was targeted. They had their eye on him. Now, there's a reason for that, too. He was uh, kind of always wanting a new identity. He always wanted to be Philbrick, you know, I led three lives and all that. And I think that they had targeted Oswald long before. What is Oswald doing in Russia when Francis uh, Gary Powers is, is shot down or put down or whatever you want to call it? What's that? Why is he there? He's there because they've put him there. 
So this story of Oswald starts way earlier than the Kennedy assassination. That's Professor John Mellon, who wrote an extensive biography on Jim Carrison and his famous case in her book, A Farewell to Justice. She seems to claim that the bad guys started targeting Oswald because they read what Kerry Tornley wrote about him. This idea begins to illuminate the connection between fiction and reality by reversing the order of things. If Oswald was trained as an assassin because of Carrie's portrait of him, fiction precedes reality. Usually it's the other way around. Or is it? Looking at just American presidential history, John Mellon's idea may be the way history really works. Cholgosh, the anarchist who shot President McKinley, comes straight out of Joseph Conrad's book, The Secret Agent. John Hinckley, who shot Ronald Reagan, was inspired by the film Taxi Driver. History may, in fact, all come out of fiction. My opinion is that they, they scooped up Thornley, obviously when he was in the Marines, and, and they had him... Um, give Oswald this fake identity that Oswald was talking about, Russia and whatever it was that he said, Oswald was said, I don't remember the exact words. And that was because they wanted, they needed a Marxist to kill Kennedy. They can't say they're going to kill Kennedy. They, referring to the clandestine services in the U.S. government, namely the CIA, were playing the long game and setting up several patsies to take the fall for future assassinations. A gallery of misfits. Oswald and Thornley fit the mold perfectly. Loners, losers, and angry at the world. So Thornley was set up to write the profile of one of his fellow soldiers, and the secret intelligence takes it from there. Who looked like him? There were Oswald doubles. There were people who went out and impersonated him. Most of them did not look like him, however. Uh... That would have been possible, though. That's the only possibility I can imagine. It's the only way I could possibly explain it. Any, either way, there was a conspiracy. There's no possibility that the lone assassin theory could be correct either way. There may have been a number of Oswalds around, but how many of them are good writers? Still, as the 60s were soon to reveal, masses of would-be artists with long hair, were being trained with LSD and rock and roll to be Manchurian candidates. The problem was that there weren't enough important people, like presidents, to kill. If Garrison could prove that Kerry was involved in a plot to assassinate the president, or the lower burden showed that Kerry knew about it, or even better, helped to create the patsy, he could be prosecuted. And that would open a can of worms that no intelligence service in the world wouldn't be mighty proud and guilty of. Yes, I could, yeah, of course. I could be, uh, I could be locked up for 20 years in the state of Louisiana for conspiracy to commit murder. I could be convicted of the same, because of what I'm saying at this time, I could be convicted, in my opinion, and I, I think I understand the law pretty well there. Jim Garrison at the time tried me for perjury. At what time? Uh, 
in in uh, 1968, uh, tried to try to charge me. Charged you? Know, perjury. Yeah. Uh, if he had charged me with conspiracy to commit murder, and if he had understood then the importance of what I understood now, he could have convicted me easily. What Kerry is referring to are also his conversations in New Orleans with Slim Brooks and brother-in-law about their hatred of Kennedy. They talked openly in bars about killing Kennedy and explored the best way to carry out the killing and get away with it. And in their last meeting, two weeks before the assassination, they talked about finding a communist to frame for the murder. It was Kerry himself who suggested to brother-in-law framing a communist. He may have well known who the communist was because he had written him up. Just before I testified before the grand jury, I went walking to the French Quarter, and I happened to spot Slim Brooks crossing the street in front of me. And I yelled, hey, Slim. And Slim came over and he says, how are you doing, Kerry? And I said, fine. We're walking down the street together. And he says, by the way, he says, you're not planning to mention brother-in-law to Jim Garrison, are you? So I, you know, this weird Nazi brother-in-law Slim, so I wasn't going to bring him up. You know, to me, he was just a can of worms, you know. For the second time in his official depositions, Kerry failed to mention these two characters, Slim Brooks and brother-in-law and the long conversations they had prior to November 22, 1963. This talk of killing JFK may not have been the mere idle speculation of drinking bohemians. Carey did not reveal either his acquaintances nor their conversations to the Warren Commission, and now he did not tell Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison just... uh... Like I say, he decided that I was feeding him false information, and so he decided I was one of the assassins. So the next thing he decided was I probably set up Oswald. Garrison suspected that Thornley was not completely forthright in his testimony before the grand jury. Garrison charged me uh, with perjury for denying that I had met with Oswald in Bourbon House in New Orleans. Uh, in 1963, in September of that year, just uh, previous to the assassination. I had not seen Oswald since I'd been out of the Marines. I had not been aware that he was in New Orleans uh, until after the assassination. Then uh, uh, the, the disturbing thing about uh, what uh, the dealings with Garrison were, what his assistant uh, district attorneys told me, uh, and that was that there were there was this enormous chain of coincidences linking me with uh, his suspects. And it is on these coincidences that Jim Garrison built his case in New Orleans. But strangely, not against Kerry Thornley, but against another man. In June of 1963, President Kennedy, addressing students at the American University in Washington told them, we breathe the same air as the Russians. He said, we should try to live together in peace on this earth. But at this point, some individuals transferred their hostile attention from Fidel Castro to John F. Kennedy. They planned the president's assassination, and they planned it well. In the NBC special news program, Jim Garrison is wearing a light-colored suit and sits on the edge of a large desk. He imbues confidence, an authority in search, if not in possession, of the truth. His hair is short. 
And I believe that people of America want to know the entire truth about how their president was shot down in the streets of Dallas. And I want to assure you that as long as I am alive, no one is going to stop me from seeing that you obtain the full truth and nothing less than the full truth and no fairy tales. Jim Garrison ran for district attorney of New Orleans with a lack of political backing in a city entrenched in political grift and favoritism. Like President Kennedy, he used the power of a new medium, television, to reach voters, and his charisma won them over in a televised debate. He became a popular, flamboyant, and colorful figure in the city, gaining national attention for a series of raids on the gay bars in the French Quarter. But his ambition ran deeper. We don't know how deep. Maybe he wanted to become president. Finding the murderers of President John F. Kennedy became his primary obsession when he discovered the many unexplained connections in New Orleans that he saw a way to get attention, and that was to be the, the one person who prosecuted someone for killing John Kennedy. And he, he sort of jumped from theory to theory. At the beginning, he had this sort of uh, homophobic uh, fascination with what he believed was a gay plot uh, in New Orleans against Kennedy. And then he decided that, no, it was really um, a government plot because to keep Kennedy from taking America out of Vietnam. But, uh, you know, he, he, his methods were very questionable as well as his theories. By the time Garrison began his investigation, the war in Vietnam had become very unpopular. The constant coverage on the nightly news and large casualties was a malignant tumor on Johnson's presidency and was tearing the country apart. Many Americans remembered what was lost with Kennedy's passing, a young idealist president in a peaceful time. Kennedy, it was believed, would not have involved us so deeply in that hopeless war. And that, perhaps, was why he was killed. John Mellon, who wrote several biographical volumes on Garrison, recounts the first time she met the district attorney. My fr- I was sick. New Orleans is the worst climate in the world, I think, by far. Sultry. You can't breathe. It was May or June. I, I suddenly took to my bed. I couldn't get out of my bed. The picture of me and Garrison in this book is in the bedroom where I'm... I'm <laughs> I can't breathe. So I try not to say anything or show it, but it was hard. Anyway, he comes in. I don't know who he is. I don't really know that he's district attorney of Orleans Parish or what that means. How powerful is that? And um, he's talking about the Kennedy assassination nonstop. And uh, he was for justice. He was for the rights of the individual. He was for um, protecting people. And he did all that. And I mean, there are a lot of these slanderers of Garrison who always try to say that he didn't appreciate the rights of the uh, uh, witnesses and defendants, and it's not true. Uh, my first suspicion of Jim Garrison was that he wasn't on the level at all, that he was a racketeer of some type. 
Uh, my second feeling about him was that he wasn't a racketeer, that he was sincere, but that he was nuts. Tell us what happened. Uh, my third feeling about him was that he was a fool who stumbled onto some, some uh, accurate data. Uh, so, let's break down Kerry's opinions about Garrison, each of which can be another podcast. To disentangle all the characters, tangents, and unresolved mysteries of the conman, the earnest believer, and the crazy could make us a yet unwritten history of America. Mark Twain would have loved it. To say it is complicated is understating it. In the end, the only person to be prosecuted for the murder of President Kennedy by D.A. Garrison was a man named Clay Shaw. C-L-A-Y-S-H-A-W. The spelling is important. Mr. Shaw, before the district attorney's men came here and arrested you, had you any idea that anything like this was planned, that Mr. Garrison was after you or anything like that? None whatsoever. No idea. What are your general feelings about the case now? Well, you understand I'm constrained by court order not to discuss the case as such. I can say to you that, I, as I've said before, I am completely innocent. No knowledge of any conspiracy whatsoever to kill President Kennedy or anyone else. That was Clay Shaw being interviewed for Canadian television in 1967. He is articulate, highly educated, and meticulously dressed. He is known around town for his full head of white hair. Clay Shaw was a native of Kentwood, Louisiana. A highly decorated officer in the United States Army during World War II, he started the International Trademark in New Orleans to facilitate sales of both international and domestic goods. He was known for his efforts to preserve the historic buildings in the French Quarter. And he was gay in a time when being gay was a crime. So he kept it secret, but it was a commonly known secret among his friends and high society. I don't know that I would call it secret. I would just say that it was sort of compartmentalized, right? And, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were aware, but he also had that sort of reputable business career, and there are people who work with him who understand that he's gay and closeted because they themselves are. Um, and also he's a sort of, you know, man about town and an escort for uh, well-to-do women. And, um, and some of them, of course, understand uh, his private life um, in that way. So it's one of those, um, uh, there's a Portuguese word they use for um, being gay, which is entendido, which is understood. And I think um, for him, in many ways, it was understood rather than explicitly talked about. That was Professor Alicia P. Long, author of Cruising for Conspirators, How a New Orleans DA Prosecuted the Kennedy Assassination as a Sex Crime. Well, Jim Garrison makes that explanation in calling it a homosexual thrill killing. I mean, that that phrase comes from him, right? But it reflects a sort of larger cultural belief, the one you're describing, that uh, gay men are uh, sexually deviant and in that way are, uh, up, you know, liable to commit all kinds of crimes, up to and including murder. So it's a kind of, you know, lurking, but I think um, convenient kind of cultural belief that uh, Jim Garrison ultimately sort of leverages in making Clay Shaw a legible suspect in a conspiracy with two other men who conveniently by this point are both dead. Let's get that clear. Clay Shaw, 
a respected businessman and historical preservationist, kills President Kennedy for kicks. Gays are murderers, Shaw is gay, and Kennedy is the kinkiest thing a gay killer might do. Okay, chalk one for Thornley's garrison the nut theory. Historian John Mellon disagrees. Garrison has no dog in the fight about gays, even though he arrested quite a few of them around election time. That's just a Louisiana tradition. Well, it's wrong. It's just a way of trying to undercut his work. He had no interest in Shaw's homosexuality. I promise. And if you look at the trial transcript, you'll never, you won't see one reference to it. Nor did, he, nor did he call to the stand any witnesses that were gay and that knew Shaw that way. Never. You have never yourself had any CIA connection? None whatsoever. Any association with the organization? No, at all? none. Have you read the Warren Commission report? Uh, yes, I have read the Warren Commission report. I mean, had you read it before this case started? Only in summary. I had not read it in detail. Since then, I suppose you've been into it in some detail. You may be sure that I have. And uh, what's your opinion of its findings, Mr. Shaw? Clay Shaw, of course, thinks that Garrison is insane. I think that the Warren, uh, uh, Warren Commission report comes as close as anything we will ever know as to describing what actually happened on that tragic day on November 22nd in Dallas. It seems to me that here you're faced with an either-or situation. You must either believe that the Warren Commission is substantially correct and that a lone assassin got a lucky shot at the president, or you must conceive of a conspiracy so vast as to boggle the imagination. If indeed there were a conspiracy, it could not have been a small one. It would have had to involve the Dallas police force, the doctors at Parkland Hospital, the doctors at Bethesda Hospital, the FBI, the Secret Service, the members of the, some members of the Department of Justice, the Attorney General and his chief aides, and possibly even the White House. Now, I cannot accept the fact that such a conspiracy did exist, first of all, because I think it would have been almost impossible to arrange a conspiracy with this literally thousands of characters. And had it, been, had, had it been done, in the four years intervening, there certainly would have been someone who would have come forward to tell the truth, a deathbed confession, what you will, over a period of four years. Kerry Thornley saw Garrison as the earnest believer and intricate plotter. Indeed, he weaves a spider web. To prove Clay Shaw's connection to other characters involved in the plot to kill Kennedy, Garrison needed to prove that Clay Shaw was a man named Clay Bertrand, an alleged associate of Lee Harvey Oswald. Supposedly, this Clay Bertrand called a lawyer named Dean Andrews in New Orleans to represent Oswald when he was arrested for the murder of President Kennedy. To give you an idea of what Dean Andrews looks like, he was played by John Candy in Oliver Stone's film, JFK. It was Oswald. It was a fruitcake. You know, he needed this country. problem, Dean. I know you know who Clay Bertrand is, all right? Now stop eating that damn crab meat a minute and listen. I'm aware of our friendship. But I want you to know I'm going to call you in front of the grand jury. And you lie to the grand jury as you've been lying to me. I'm going to charge you with perjury. Right now, I took nine judges on right here in New Orleans, Dino. I beat them all. So am I communicating with you? Is this off the record, Daddy O? Good. In that case, let me sum it up for you real quick. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bon Voyard Dino. 
I mean like permanent. I mean like a bullet in my head, you dig? Your mouse fighting a gorilla. Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. The government's still breathing. You want to line up with a dead Eat man? My lips, Dino. Either you dance into the grand jury with the real identity of Claire Bertrand, or your fat behind's going to the slammer. Now you dig me? You're as crazy as your mama. Goes to show it's in the jeans. You have any idea what you're getting yourself into, Daddy-o? The government's gonna jump all over your head, Jimbo, and go cock-a-doodle-doo. Good day to you, sir. So, Dean Andrews says that in the summer of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald came into his office a handful of times. That number will vary, um, but it may be as many as half a dozen times. Uh, he wants to talk about um, the status of his discharge from the Navy, if it can be changed from uh, uh, dishonorable to honorable. Andrew says that he comes in with three gay kids. Three gays aside, Dean Andrews provided at least three separate and distinct descriptions of Clay Bertrand to the FBI. The FBI, after he tells this story, really does a pretty thorough search around New Orleans looking for this person, and Andrews is not cooperating in finding or identifying this person. And ultimately, he will concede that he made it up. When Dean Andrews refused to connect Clay Shaw to Clay Bertrand, under questioning by Garrison, Garrison turned to an insurance salesman, Perry Russo, who, under hypnosis and sodium pentatol, claimed he also attended a gay party at the apartment of anti-Castro activist David Ferry, attended by Clay Bertrand, a.k.a. Clay Shaw, and Leon Oswald. The hypnotized and drugged Russo gives various different descriptions of Clay Bertrand, who is really Clay Shaw, and Leon Oswald, who is really Lee Harvey Oswald. Confused yet? So, there is this gay party at Ferry's place, but the conversation is not gay. They discussed plans to kill Fidel Castro and invade Cuba, and assassinating President Kennedy through triangulation of crossfire. David Ferry, you see, is a pilot for the Louisiana Air Patrol and associated with mob boss Carlos Marcello. He is also bald. He suffers from alopecia and must, therefore, wear many wigs and also false eyelashes. Ferry is supposed to be the getaway pilot for JFK's assassins. If you are dizzy now, it's not the sodium pentothal, it's the hypnosis or something slipped in your bourbon. The multiplying effects will wear off soon, I promise. Yes. You know, I knew about David Ferry. I had met him once and I read about him. You met David Ferry? Yes, this was something I didn't realize at the time I testified before the grand jury. But uh, a few uh, uh, months later, uh, somebody mentioned the address of David Ferry's house on Louisiana Avenue. And I knew that I had gone to that house for a party. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered that my girlfriend had said to me, we're going to a party at the house of a homosexual airplane pilot named Ferry. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Oh, Ferry. Yeah. Like yeah. Mm -hmm. Jim Garrison arrested and indicted Clay Shaw for the assassination of President Kennedy. Did you yourself ever know Oswald or David Ferry? Never knew, never knew either one of them, no. You never even saw them or no. came into contact no. with them in no, any indeed. way? How has this, uh, this whole thing been going on now for, what, nearly six months, hasn't it? This is the seventh month, I believe. How is this affecting you personally? I mean, all this publicity and the being named as a man 
uh, being indicted for this uh, alleged conspiracy. Well, it certainly is not uh, the pleasantest thing in the world to understate the case, to find yourself charged with the most heinous crime probably of our times. On the other hand, I uh, have gone ahead with my life. There's not much else you can do, is there? And I am innocent. I have very able counsel. And I have absolute faith in the American judici uh, judicial system, which will prove me innocent. In the end, Clay Shaw was proven innocent. The jury came back in less than an hour with their verdict. Not guilty. The only connection between Clay Shaw and Clay Bertrand was their first names. Now you can relax. The sodium pentatol has worn off. And Garrison never came off, whatever he was on. Even though he failed to convict Shaw or anyone else of conspiracy to murder President Kennedy, he did plant the seeds of a greater hidden conspiracy and the widespread idea that Oswald was a patsy. Here he is in an interview in the late 1970s. He still has a full head of hair. But with regard to John Kennedy's murder, the Central Intelligence Agency was not involved as a structure, as an organization. That would be a mistake, and I think it would be irresponsible to, to hold forth that theory. That's not my position at all. But it did become apparent that a part of the Central Intelligence Agency was employed. Clay Shaw died in 1974 from lung cancer. In 1979, Richard Helms, former director of the CIA, testified under oath that Shaw had been a part-time contact of the Domestic Contact Service, DCS, of the CIA. This service involved 150,000 Americans, mostly businessmen and journalists, who provided non-clandestine information about their travels. In Shaw's case, it was his trips to Latin America. But this was hardly a very secret mission. Shaw reported to the CIA his opinions about the politics of the places he did business in. But, coincidentally, hmm, Kerry Thornley did meet Clay Shaw while in New Orleans. Clay Shaw okay. uh, when did you shook hands, hands with two Clay weeks Shaw? before the assassination at most, maybe less. Anyway, one, one day I had loaned my Idle Warriors book manuscript to my landlord who said his mother was a writer and wanted to look at it. Mm, and at the end of the weekend, mm -hmm. I loaned it to him over a weekend. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the weekend, I went up to his house to get the manuscript, and he introduced me to Clay Shaw and one other gentleman. I don't remember who. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, well, one of them was undoubtedly Clay Shaw. And he said, uh, and this was something I didn't remember until just before I testified. However, it was brought back to my mind because the girl that I was with at the time mm -hmm. kept saying afterwards, that Clay Shaw sure is a handsome man. That's the only reason so I the name, it. right. Yeah. yeah, and I remembered it in that that way first, her mm -hmm. talking, and then I said, who was she talking about? And then I remember, I thought, oh my God, that was, they, they're, my book about Oswald, and there's Clay Shaw standing there as the guy's giving it back to me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What spooks carry here is that two weeks before the assassination, Clay Shaw read his book about Lee Harvey Oswald, and maybe got the idea to frame Oswald. But then so did Slim and brother-in-law and Kerry himself who gave them the idea in the first place. 
If there was indeed a conspiracy, the frame for the Patsy, the blueprint for Oswald, who could have been any number of Oswalds, had been drawn by Carey in his book, The Idle Warriors. Carey wrote the future in the book about his past life in the Marines. At this point, in the 1970s, Carey himself wasn't yet sure that he was the creator of the monster. His suspicions hardened later. After many psychedelic journeys and eerie events in the 70s and 80s, all of which led him to examine himself and the zeitgeists, the spirits of his times, connected in odd ways to his adolescent revelations in Principia Discordia. Eris, the goddess of chaos, was awake and doing her thing. However, there were some other coincidences that I could not explain away. Uh, maybe about half as many as I've been presented with because their thing was that they were going to scare me and they thought I knew something. They thought I knew I knew something. They thought they were going to scare me into confessing by giving me a whole lot of coincidences. Some of the coincidences were invalid, some of them weren't. Here, the ones that you were, saying were the one they thought, they thought yeah. one thing, but what you're saying now well, is it was something They thought I was different. involved on the field level of the assassination conspiracy. I was involved in the planning level. I wasn't involved in the field level. And all of these coincidences can drive a man insane. I am Andrei Kodrescu, and this was The Second Oswald, a Ratapalax production, produced by Ram Devineni, written and performed by Andrei Kodrescu. Audio engineered by René Veron. Supported through a grant from New York State Council on the Arts. All rights reserved.